Blog Talk Radio. Let me see, Rob. No time to take one. Here we go. Well, 062 
everybody what to not do, not so much what to do. He never told anybody what to play. One time I think he tried to tell me something about playing the drums, and I told him, let me play the drums. Yeah, that's how we do it. I can say that to her without getting fired. You know. That was a perfect match. Yeah. Jimmy Hobbs, Eric Paul Chambers. Paul Chambers. The first bass player to play bass lines for the, the first note wasn't always the root. Most people expect to hear. And, and uh, had a great sound. Uh, again, one of the guys who you know you knew it was Paul Chambers. Miles' idea was that he wanted to capture the spirit of discovery in the music. So if you work it out so that everybody knows everything about the music, then you're going past, past the spirit of discovery. He wants to capture discovery in the music on the record. The first complete performance of each thing is what you're hearing. If you can get that first first take, and it's good enough, generally that's you know, a real good one. And that may account for, you know, some of the sensitive stuff there. All of those takes on this His touch was so gorgeous on the instrument. His swing was relaxed and yet in the pocket. Miles' sparsity of notes, Bill Evans' sparsity of notes, and beautiful colors. They go hand in hand. Miles had a certain sound in mind that he thought that made it Bill could find it sooner than what? Miles had worked out a whole feeling that he wanted that evolved around the way him and Bill played together. There are so many landmark concepts that Miles employed on, on Kind of Blue. And it really set the stage for, for the music for the rest of the 20th century. It was an atmosphere. It was a a mood, it was something to swim in and to reflect in and uh, I think that's part of his enduring success. Here's a record that I could recommend to anyone from any country for any age, if you want to hear the spirit of jazz, listen to Kind of Blue. Um, and it's uh, kind of blue at 50 
uh, Jimmy Cobb's So What Band. And we've got Wallace Rooney on trumpet, Vincent Herring on alto, Javon Jackson on tenor, uh, Larry Willis on piano, and John Weber on bass. Um, he's filling in for Buster Williams, who uh, t- took ill, but I hear he's going to be better and be joining the the tour, which is, wow, uh, it goes on and on and on, um, not just here in the United States, but actually it's international tour. And you can find out all about that at jimmycobb.com. His website has a really detailed schedule. So what I am going to do right now is, um, uh, before I play the interview that I had earlier today with uh, Mr. Cobb, who is the only uh, person who is still with us uh, in this form, I'm talking physical form, that was actually on that date, uh, the other musicians have since transitioned uh, into another realm that many of us are not able to access um, in this um, material f- form that we, you know, flesh and blood. So um, Jimmy Cobb actually wrote the, uh, I think he wrote a preface or a foreword um, in this book by Ashley Kahn called Kind of Blue, The Making of the Miles Davis Masterpiece. And, you know, wonders of technology, I'm able to uh, preview this book, uh, the first page of the of the forward. I don't know if there's two pages, but I can only read one page. And I thought it was pretty pretty nice, sort of sets the mood, because I actually asked uh, Mr. Cobb, you know, sort of what was what was going on, you know, that particular day. You know, what do you have on? What do you have for breakfast? Um you know, what was the weather like? And and here in this introduction or this preface, he, you know, he's going to wax his sentim- uh, sentimentally and quite vividly about that particular date. And uh, and I want to share that with you. So I'm reading from the foreword of Conda Blue by Ashley Kahn. Um, and this is Jimmy Cobb's words. When Ashley Kahn asked me to write a foreword for the book, he was, writing on Kind of Blue, I was surprised and flattered. Not being a writer, just being a musician, I wondered what I could say. But reading this book has reminded me of how I felt on that spring day in March of 1959. I remember getting up in the morning kind of excited because I knew I had a record date with Miles Davis, putting on my clothes and getting my instrument together. I went to Columbia's 30th Street studio, took my drums inside and set them up and waited for the guys to trickle in and see what we were going to do. I always liked that big church because it had such a beautiful sound. We started looking through some of the tunes, and then when I got when we got into it, it started to be really beautiful and smooth sounding. I mean, no effort. There was no tension. It was just relaxed. The band always sounded good. How could it be? How could it sound bad? All those beautiful musicians there. You've got Bill Evans, piano player, Wynton Kelly, piano player. You've got Paul Chambers, the greatest young bass player at that time, and John Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley. As I listened to these guys on the playbacks of the tracks, I started thinking about how well they played and the origin of their sound, technique, and ideas. When I think of Bill, I think of a guy whose mother made him practice all his life. Went to a few music schools and conservatories, played a lot of classical music, but he never found his own style until he got on his own. Winton, he loved Errol Gardner, 
Garner for the way he played, felt things, and the way he could swing. Sometimes Garner could sound like two players. Winton got his spirit and flavor from his West Indian background. Paul, I know, came from the school of Jimmy Blankton and Oscar Pettiford. I could hear them in Paul's playing. Cannonball, I know for sure, came from Benny Carter, Charlie Parker, maybe a little Earl Bostic in there, too, for technique, and Johnny Hodges for tone. Coltrane came from Don Bias, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, and the latter part of his development, Sonny Rollins, and he learned something from Earl Bostic, too. Miles came from, well, all trumpet players come from Louis Armstrong. He always wanted to play like Dizzy. He listened to Howard McGee and Harry Sweets Edison sometimes, too. Miles lived with Clark Terry. I'm sure he learned a lot there. And he also revered Clark throughout his life. I was brought up listening to Billy Eckstein's band with Art Blakey. I also heard Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, Shadow Wilson, Max Roach, and Philly Joe Jones. To improvise as well as they did, these guys had to have learned a lot from the jazz giants. You get to hear the spirit of all those players in the recording of Kind of Blue. So that's a little bit of Jimmy Cobb, and isn't he a fabulous writer? And as I said, um, he wrote the preface um, for the book Kind of Blue, The Making of Kind of Blue. And so now I'm going to play this interview, Kind of Blue, uh, and I'm the voice you hear asking these questions. And as I said, um, uh had a wonderful opportunity to interview him this afternoon. Um, he's in town today, um, Friday, June 12th, and they're on their way to Los Angeles um, for Saturday. They have an evening date at the Playboy Jazz Festival in Los Angeles. So if you're in town, definitely you want to check them out. Um, I uh, want to tell you I really enjoyed um, last night. It was really, really wonderful, um, you know, seeing you all on the stage, sort of recreating that that magic, um, you know, that Miles uh, and you all did together 50 years ago. And I was wondering um, if you could tell me about that date. Um, I guess it was um, uh, March 2nd and April 22nd um, in 1959. And I was wondering... Um, I was sort of, you know, playing with some language like, do you remember what you ate for breakfast that day and no, what the no. weather was like and what you were wearing? And no, <laughs> I'm not going all in there. Oh, I'm just playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering, um, uh, sort of, if you could talk about that date and what happened, um, you know, in those two sessions that ended up, you know, creating this magnificent uh, music. Um Kind of blue. <clears throat> I don't know. Basically, it's not a. It's not that much. Mm-hmm. Much to say about it. It was actually just a, another ordinary Miles um, Davis record day. Oh really? To okay. Uh huh. Yeah. You know that nobody coming to the gig was going to figure that it's going to be something moment, momentous and monumental that we're doing, mm-hmm. and it's going to last for 50 years. That was that was would be the fault. Yeah. The further restored of it anybody's mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, we knew we we had a record to make, and uh, they had a new idea about doing something. So uh, that's what he that's what he did. I got there first because I'm the drummer. Okay. And I have to get that set up drums and stuff. So when I get my position, then they came in and they filed in, and they went over to a section of the 
of the studio where where they were set up, mm-hmm. and uh, they talked it out. I think they may have, uh, may or may not have had some kind of little rehearsal or something at at Miles's house or something. Or he probably talked to him, maybe talked to him on the phone. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, it was just like it wasn't a lot of music out in heaven, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we went in and, and uh, he started to call the tunes off and and explain how they were supposed to go and it, it kind of happened like that. Uh huh. Yeah. So did he um, give you all um, you know the sheet music for all the different songs you were going to be you know playing? At, no, at I just told you I didn't have any music for any of it. Oh, so it was all improvisational on your part. I mean, you just yeah. Well, for me it was, but they they didn't have that much music either. Oh. They may have had a a sheet of manuscript, mm-hmm. manuscript paper. Yeah. With the, you know, with the chords or something on it. Mhm. And it wasn't that many chords. He could have just probably told him what it was. And he could have probably memorized that, and just gave him some kind of form. And it kind of went down like that, you know, like uh, everything was probably just like mostly one takes. Mhm. Because of the simplicity of what they were doing. Yeah. And uh. Except for one, uh, uh, Freddie Freeloader, uh, I always tell everybody that the Miles stopped that one because he didn't want Winston to play one particular chord in there, mm-hmm. in, a, in a certain place, you know. But that's the only thing that uh, that didn't that just stopped. I, I, I can recall. Yeah, interesting. So was this is was this the way that your um, uh, recordings normally went? That you no, that's don't. not the way it normally oh. went. Because like, when I first did a re- recording with them, I went in. With a with a session that Philly Joe was supposed to make and he didn't show up, mm-hmm. and I had to finish the finish the session. That was uh, Foggy and Bess. He yeah. had done half of it, mm-hmm. and I did the other half. And that was about twenty 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 five musicians oh. in a studio with Bill, you know Gil Gil Evans uh, arranged Gil Evans, but you know mm-hmm. Gil Evans uh, compositions, you know. And like that, so uh, that required some music because I had to come right in and do something that I wasn't, you know, ready to do. Mm-hmm. I was ready to do, but I wasn't expecting to do. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah and you were on um, uh, some other um, Davis uh, albums like Sketches of Spain and, uh, and we, you're, you're also, you did 1958 Miles too, right? Uh, uh, 50, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I did. I started in '57. Mm-hmm. End of '57. Right. Yeah. So, um, so how did you, um, how did you uh, meet Miles Davis, and sort of what were your impressions of him and and the band? Well, oh, well, everybody at that time, Miles Davis was the most, uh, at the time, was the most popular jazz band in the world. Oh. Uh huh. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so uh, everybody wanted to be associated with that. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Uh, I met Miles a long time ago. That was like I was on the road with um, Dinah Washington, mm-hmm. and we worked in in Philadelphia, you know. And uh, we had to play with some some guys. Uh, there was a disc jockey in New York that came on twelve o'clock midnight at night, and he played all the modern jazz music because the other stations wouldn't play it, you know. Mm-hmm. And his name was Symphony Sid. So occasionally he would bring like a group of the guys. Whose music he was he was touting every night. He would bring them to a you know like a theater and uh, they would be called the Symphony 
see it all stars. And uh, this particular time I was in Philadelphia. I was with Donna Washington. And uh, our rhythm section was uh, a female pianist. Her name was Beryl Booker. And uh, basically it was Keita Betts who got me, uh, actually got me out on the road with a, with a Earl Bostic band uh, a little bit before. Mm-hmm. So uh, when they played, we had to play with them. And uh, his his uh, his one setup was, was Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, uh, Mill Jackson, and Toots Tillman, mm-hmm. who had just came from um, Belgium at the time from Belgium to the United States to, to you know to live, so uh, we had to play like shows two, two or three, three times a day for a week in the theater in Philadelphia called the Earl Theater. So uh, that's uh, where I really you know was in touch with Miles like on a daily basis mm-hmm. for a minute. When I first met him, you know, got to know him a little, little, little bit. Yeah. And uh, way later after that, that was so that was like in the. <laughs> At the end, uh, that was at the 50s, you know, that was still in the middle of the 50s when I met him. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really get to play in this band until maybe 50s, 57 or something like that, you know, end of 57, almost 58. Right. So that's where, I, that's where I met him, you know, so. And then to, when I got in the band, it was because of Julian Cannonball Adderley, who had, uh, who had Miles had hired. And I had been in a band with him and his brother, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, that was a little bit before, just right after leaving uh, Dinah Washington. And that band consisted of Junior Mance, Sam Jones, and uh, and his brother Nat and me, you know. Mm-hmm. And they had a quintet. We made a record. Right. You know, so that's how I got. I knew him. You know, we were we were friends from them. So he, uh, the reason I got the band, he called me uh, and told me that Philly Joe, who was in Miles' band at the time with Paul Chambers, Red Garland, and, and uh, Coltrane, uh, Joe had, was missing a few of the jobs for what, whatever reason, you know. Mm-hmm. So he asked me to come by and sit in in case Joe didn't show up, I could play, you know. Right. So that's basically how I got in the band one day, Joe didn't show up, getting back to the, to the, to the, the date. Mm-hmm. That I just mentioned, you know. Right. Yeah. So, um, how was it working um, in the band? I mean, was it was it enjoyable? Um, did you um, grow as an artist? You know, being you know with these other musicians and making the kind of music you all made. Of course, baby. They had the best uh, musicians in the world. But I just told you, it was the best band, mm-hmm. best jazz band in the world. And everybody on it, all instruments wants to be wanted to be in that band. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody would have jumped at the opportunity to be in that band. Okay, so it's, so you all were like the elite. That's uh, right. So, okay. Uh, so uh, what's what's uh, what's not to like with that? Oh yeah, it's everything. <laughs> it's everything. It's like you're like one of the chosen ones, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So so talk about. Um, this particular, you know, kind of Louis 50, um, you know, why it's, you know, seen as such a monumental um, uh, work of art. I couldn't tell you that, dear. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> All I know, it was a good album that uh, must, have, must, have, must have appeared at the right time. Mm-hmm. It must have grabbed everybody in a certain kind of way. Uh-huh. That's the only thing I can tell. It's uh, something magical that happens, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. 
I don't know how often it happens, but uh, it's like, uh, you know, it's like, uh, I guess, probably the first time some people ever heard uh, Louis Armstrong or, or any of those people, you know, that that had basic basic things to do with this music, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, really the, the beginners of this music. You know, uh, it just happened to, uh, to catch on to a lot of people, even people that weren't even interested in the music, mm -hmm. heard that and liked it, you know. So I could, if I could explain that, you know, I would uh, probably be much better off than I am right now because, you know, I would have produced that long time ago myself. <laughs> <laughs>
giving the different um, musicians steam. You know, I could tell when you were giving steam uh, to Larry Willis and when you were giving steam to the horn section. And then, you know, then you had your wonderful opportunity to just solo, and that was real nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you, it, uh, for me, it's not about having a solo through everything, you know. It's mm-hmm. just uh, like I was saying, it's basically um, I'm, I'm there to make the music, try to make the music sound good and, you know, make everybody feel good that's involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's still nice to just see you, you know, sort of like just let go and shine. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, you know, I can do that occasionally, but I don't, I don't really have to keep doing it. Oh, no, I mean, you just <laughs> did it once and that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see, I had another question. Um, let's see what I want to ask you. Um, I uh, was wondering, um, sort of, um, how you've been able to, um, you know, maintain, you know, um, your presence, you know, in this genre for all this time. I mean, you know, what is it that keeps you going creatively to be able to keep, you know, doing what you're doing for all, you know, for as long as you've been doing it? Uh, the ability to just pay the rent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you mean economics is driving it? Uh, what was that? You say, so you're saying that the economics? No, 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 no. <laughs> you're just kidding, That's right? Part, partial joke. Okay. No, the most of it is, uh, you know, because I love music. That's why I got it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's why I do it because guys keep coming to me because in one place, I'm the only one that you can talk to about a certain thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get a lot of lot of response from that, you know, being the only, only member that this this band we're talking about that's alive. Mm-hmm. So everybody asked me just like you are <laughs> about how it was and what it was, and I'm the only one who can tell them mm-hmm. how it was and what it was to the best of my ability. Right, yeah. Do you, do you get tired of being asked those questions? Or? Sometimes. <laughs> I hope this is not one of them. Uh, and uh, I was speaking to um, Elena, and, and she was telling me that um, Kind of Blue um, was a financial success also, that it grossed, you know, millions of dollars, like over $60 million, and, and that the musicians on the date, though, didn't make that much, um, that much money, and um, yourself included. And I was wondering, um, have things gotten better for musicians you know, who are a part of of a band around their uh, royalties, or are people still are still um, are the leaders still making the? That's the same way it was. Uh, it's not a. Uh, huh. It's not any better than it was back then. Back then, to mm-hmm. get paid, you had to sign a, a, a form. You had to fill out a, a form to even get the little money that you made that day. Mm-hmm. You know, and then it took two or three weeks to get that. Yeah. So they had, the lawyers had already fixed it up. So if anything ever happened, you would, you were out of it. Mm. You know. So that was your one shot, and that was it. So you signed that, you know, without knowing that uh, that anything like this would ever happen. You know. So uh, mm-hmm. so that's what happened. So uh, we are, uh, you know, right now we're trying to work on some way around that, but uh, I don't know. It may or may not happen. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so in your own band, um, with you know the, um, you know when you have musicians in your band, is do you write it so that they get their royalties also? Um, like for instance, you have a contract with um, 
uh, like let's say a, a producing entity, does it? Do you make it so that it doesn't happen like it happened to you with regards to, you know, just making, I think your wife said, um, just 800? Oh, yeah, well, see, what happens if uh, somebody in my band is uh, making rights to tune and we record it, they get, the, you get, you get money for that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you just get paid for the day, too. Oh. We're making arrangements in front of getting paid for the day, too. Mm -hmm. That other part I don't really have to worry about because I can't see myself. Making a record that's going to last 50 years. You know, oh. well, you never know. Because <laughs> you've got a lot of albums out there. You've been playing a whole lot. Um, you know, um, you know, because, uh, you know, you mentioned someone, you say, like, Christian McBride. I mentioned Christian McBride. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, he was, I was on album with him, and he was on album with me. And, right. Yeah. And I was wondering, um, I, I think uh, you mentioned yesterday, or your wife did, that you have a CD coming out this summer. And I was wondering if you could tell me about it. I don't know about it yet. Oh, it's, oh you haven't made it's it yet? Oh, okay. It's in there. Okay. All right. Okay, cool. All righty. Well, I want to thank you so much. Oh, one more thing. Um, I've asked everyone, and so far no one's been able to tell me, but I was wondering, uh, or they don't want to tell me, do you have, like, a favorite song on um, Kind of Blue? Or, or or is there one that sort of resonates for you more than the others? Uh, no, I kind of like it all, but I kind of like the one that's, uh, let's say, more akin to the way we were playing before that happened. That's the one uh, that when when Kelly plays on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was one that um I think Javon likes that one too because he mm -hmm. said yeah the the uh, I think it was blue and green or something like that. Oh no, well, no, it wasn't that. But about that one. Okay. No, it was the uh, one when played on was uh. Oh yeah, Freddie Freddie Freeloader. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He liked that one too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. All right. You take good care. Okay. You too. Bye bye. Right, bye bye. Well, that was Jimmy Cobb, the great Jimmy Cobb, um, who is the uh, the only surviving member of the kind of blue uh, date uh, 50 years ago. And uh, Jimmy Cobb was uh, born in Washington, D.C., January 20th, 1929. So this year he is 80 years old. 80? Yeah, gosh, I'm doing the math. You would not believe it at all, seeing him up there. So you, that's another added incentive to go check him out in L.A. Um, if you're in California, it's just an hour away on the airplane. Um, so anyway, um, he said that he liked uh, Blue and Green, um, which is uh, uh, the song that... Um, that Wynton, um, what's the brother's first name? Um, Wynton Kelly played on. And so I'm going to play that now. And, and then um, I think I will um, maybe uh, let you listen to the interview with Javon. And I think we might close out with, yeah, I think we'll close out with the interview with Wallace Rooney. And, uh, and I'll play the um, So What? Alrighty, here is, let's see, where is it, um, blue, uh, <laughs> okay, 
nothing in just a second. Oh, I'm not locating. Oh, here it is, Freddie Freeloader. I'm just tripping here. Okay, Freddie Freeloader. It's not blue and green. It's Freddie Freeloader. All righty.
that was hmm, <laughs> that was Freddie Freeloader, and that featured the music, the piano playing of of Winton. Gosh, what is his last name? Oh heck. <laughs> That was uh, featured on piano. That was Winton Kelly on piano. And this is Wanda's Picks, and I am coming to you live on Friday, June 13th, the day before the remembrance for the African ancestors. Hopefully you all will be pouring libations on Saturday uh, morning, uh, June 13th, uh, here in on the West Coast, we're pouring at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, if you're on the East Coast, you should be pouring at 12 noon. And if you are other places like Central, like around Texas, 11 o'clock in the morning, on the nose. And if you're in other places in the world, then you just need to set your clock according to those times that I just mentioned. Um, I wanted to mention, um, just because uh, Mr. Uh, Cobb talked about Boxing and Miles Davis, I wanted to mention that um, there's a film on PBS that um, you can buy now or get from the library. It's called Unforgivable Unforgivable Blackness, and it's the uh, Jack Johnson story. And Miles Davis actually recorded um, some Jack Johnson's sessions, and uh, you can purchase those too or get them from the library. And that was back in 1970. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play uh, an interview with Javon Jackson, and then we're going to conclude with an interview um, with Wallace Rooney, and then I'll play some more music after that. So here's Javon Jackson on Kind of Blue at 50. So um, tell me about this um, monumental recording, uh, Kind of Blue at 50, and... um, Sort of what your impressions are of of the date, and um, sort of why why this particular um, recording is such a celebrated one throughout um, the world and throughout the genre of you know its impact on on jazz. Well, the uh, musicians that were a part of the recording, mm-hmm. obviously John Coltrane, <coughs> Campbell Adley, and uh, Paul. Chamber, excuse me, Wynn Kelly, Jimmy, of course, Cobb, and, and obviously Miles, and, and the nature of the music, the direction that it was taking, and uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, Miss Bill Evans, too, and just the originals and uh, uh, just the configuration. So mm-hmm. time has just proven it to be number one selling jazz record of all time and definitely one of the most influential. So it's been 50 years, and we uh, luckily have Jimmy still around, and playing great, so um, the idea came to come out and uh, do some dates um, with uh, the musicians that he chose, which these are his choices. So it's very fun, it's very uh, inspiring, and uh, it's an honor to uh, tour with such great artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have a history of, um, you know, your relationship with some great drummers, you know, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Um, being one of those places, um, but I was wondering how had how did um, I mean, had you ever played with Jimmy Cobb before? Um, how does he know you? I met Art, uh, excuse me, Jimmy during my time with Art Blakey. Oh, but, uh, okay. 
I've played with Jimmy in different situations, whether it be with Cedar Walton. Mm -hmm. Actually, Jimmy's been gracious enough to tour with me. He's done um, several tours with me. We went to South Africa last year together. We toured um, in Europe um, the year before that, and then we uh, did some touring in the United States. So uh, Jimmy and I have a real nice relationship. I've recorded on some of his CDs as well. It's a CD that I was a part of with he and myself and Christian McBride and Cedar Walton. So. I've um, done some things with Jimmy. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, were you born when uh, uh, Kind of Blue was recorded? And uh, and if you were born, you were probably really young. So, um, uh, no, I wasn't born. You weren't born. Okay. So, when did you encounter that recording? And yeah. Well, teenager. Mm -hmm. Teenager became aware of it again. Again, it's such an influential record that there isn't a jazz musician who doesn't own the CD or recording. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this came from that perspective and enjoying it and studying it and analyzing it uh, as it got older, like most musicians do with the recording. And so mm -hmm. that's my connection to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, did any particular songs uh, speak to you in any particular way? And do you have any favorites? Um, not particularly, but they're all so wonderful. They're all apples and oranges. I guess uh, Freddie Freeloader, Freeloader would be one I think about more in some ways than the others um, due to the fact that that's the only track on the record that Wynton Kelly plays on. Mm -hmm. And um, the spirit and the uh, style of the solos, so that would be one mm -hmm. that might stick out. But they're all they're all wonderful. Yeah. So tell us about Wenton Kelly. What? I'll tell you about Wenton Kelly? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't. I didn't know him. Oh <laughs> I mean, yeah, obviously, I just, yeah. I just enjoy. <laughs> I enjoy his playing. I enjoy his spirit, and uh, he's a dynamic uh, musician. So every time uh, I hear him, I enjoy him because everything he plays uh, is not wasted. There's no wasted notes. Uh, everything has uh, such vibrancy. So that's a uh, my perspective, I mean, somebody like Jimmy would have a better reflection, especially on a personal level, than I would. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you have a new CD out. Um, I saw you selling it last night, uh, mm -hmm. Once Upon a Melody. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's going to be released on September 16th, which means like you're... you're no, no, no. Oh. It came out September 16th, okay. 2008. Okay, okay. But I've been traveling <laughs> so much and I really haven't had a chance to tour the record mm -hmm. with the group on the CD. Because yeah. I was out in the fall with Cedar Walton for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And then this year we started this group. And then also I've been doing some touring with my group with Les McCann. So haven't been able to really tour this project. So um, just trying to support the CD while it's still somewhat fresh and mm -hmm. bring it out and let people um, get a copy if they like. Oh, okay, yeah, I have to have those folks send me a copy so then I could have you on again and we could talk more about it. That'd be great. Yeah, so talk to me about, about you know, this, this tenor saxophone thing going on, um, you know, with um, the uh, kind of blue in particular, you know, um, John Coltrane, but then, you know, um, your own uh, attraction to the instrument, um, you know, what about the tenor saxophone attracted you to it and, and why did that become, become your vehicle for expression artistically? Well, I started with the alto saxophone mm -hmm. and um, 
my switch to the tenor saxophone in my senior year in high school just because uh, I was in a citywide group that um, already had an alto saxophone, and so for me to be in the ensemble, I had to play tenor. So basically from there, just uh, practiced it, loved it. Uh, uh, there's such a rich history in terms of the musicians that have played the instrument, so mm -hmm. it keeps me busy. Obviously, John Coltrane is um, a person that's so uh, formidable in our business, so uh, we all spend some time um, having to, um, well, not having to, or having the desire to uh, review and enjoy and obviously uh, make a study of his art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, some other great tenors are, um, you know, Sonny Rollins and um, Stanley Tarantine, just, and the late Stanley Tarantine. Um, I was wondering, um, I don't remember, because I know we've talked in the past, but I don't remember sort of where you hail from. Like, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I was born in Missouri, but okay. I grew up in uh, Denver, Colorado. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I also was noticing that um, in your Once Upon a Melody, you've got Eric Reed on piano and uh, uh, Cochran holds on bass and um, Billy Drummond um, on the uh on, on your uh, on your on your recording and uh, sort of sort of how is this is this your um, I know you have a band like is this your band um, this personnel or was it special this date? Well, I hadn't made a acoustic CD in terms of um, non-electric instruments in a while, so I just wanted to come back to that and I uh, wanted to celebrate. Um, various periods of my life and with various musicians so mm -hmm. there was a period where our Blakey obviously helped me greatly so we did something in his honor mm -hmm. one by one which is a messenger uh, jazz messenger composition written by Wayne Shirton he was with our Blakey and I did something for Elvin Jones and mm -hmm. did something for McCoy mm -hmm. um, different musicians that I've enjoyed over the years we did um, uh, the end crowd made popular by Ramsey Lewis did a standard, um, a Broadway standard, We Still Be Mine, that the impetus came from um, my love for, for Freddie Hubbard and the way he used to um, present that. And we did something for Sonny Rollins, who um, I owe so much to, and we all do, mm -hmm. saxophonists and musicians in general, but I owe him a lot because he's made himself uh, very available to me as a friend and as a um, supporter, as, a, as an artist. So, again, those uh, vehicles came out of that mindset and had a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And we hope to be doing some more uh, dates uh, down the road. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we haven't had a chance as yet to do anything. But I'm sure at some point we'll do something. Right, yeah. I think the last time I saw you came through with um, Les McCann, and I thought that was really great because I hadn't seen Les McCann in a long time. Right, we're doing some as soon as I leave this group. Mm. I mean, last next week, and we'll be uh, playing in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Next oh, nice. Week, and then we're playing at the Clifford Brown Jazz Festival in Wilmington, Delaware next weekend. So, oh, see us next week. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, that's really wonderful. And then Curtis Fuller, um, how's he doing? I haven't seen him in a long time. Curtis is great. I want to see Curtis Sunday night. Oh. Playing in New York, we're doing uh, 
musical celebration for Freddie Hubbard. Oh, you're a part of that. Okay, a friend of mine is flying out for that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'll be there Sunday night. Mm-hmm. So I'll see Curtis then. Curtis is doing very well. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Then I'm going to Japan with Curtis in mm, July of this year, so I'll get a chance to spend some time with him. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Let's come have to email you so you can send me some contact information for uh, for Curtis and um, for Les McCann. Oh, that's great. That's really great. Well, I know that time is of an essence and you have to work tonight, so I'm not going to keep you. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to um, talk to you about Anaconda Blue at 50 um, and the So What Band, which is really wonderful. Is this the ensemble? Um, you know, with Wallace Rooney, uh, Vincent Herring, yourself, uh, Larry Willis, and um, and John Weber, um, because Buster Williams isn't well, feeling well. Is this, you know, this configuration, have you played with all these musicians together before like this? Uh, we played together. Not uh, We did some uh, other dates mm-hmm. prior to this, so we've okay. starting to... Um, a capture a sound and a, a spirit for one another, but we've all played together in different situations mm-hmm. other than this one, but it's nice to have this configuration. Mm-hmm. I meant like, have you all, I mean, not playing like, for instance, you playing with other, their bands, but I'm talking about all of you all on the stage at the same time together. Is this, is, are you saying that you all have played uh, together in this form? Well, no, this is the oh. first time because, okay. again, this was uh, spearheaded by Jimmy and Kind of Blue, so this mm-hmm. configuration has never been together. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, there was a, a, another uh, Kind of Blue tribute group that was done some years ago, but I wasn't part of it, mm-hmm. and neither was Larry. I think Vincent was a part of it, and uh, Buster was. But uh, So it was a different group. But, no, in terms of these musicians together mm-hmm. on the stage, this is obviously the first time. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really marvelous, and, uh, you know, from the applause and, and the smiles afterwards, I know everyone is really enjoying it, so thank you so much. Well, that's what makes it nice, Wanda, to, to be able to uh, have the audience uh, feel the joy that we feel to uh, be able to present it, mm-hmm. so we uh, we greatly appreciate that support. I, speaking for the musicians, I know I do. Right, yeah, and, uh, and you know, Miles is a Gemini, and you're a Gemini with a birthday coming up on Tuesday the 16th. So I want to wish you a happy birthday. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you take good care. You do the same. All right, peace and blessings. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Devon Jackson um, with the um, Kind of Blue S50, Jimmy Cobb's so what band that's uh, performing tonight, and then they're going to move on to Los Angeles for Saturday, June third. No, June. Um, yeah, June thirteenth, seven o'clock. And uh, I'm going to um, play. Uh, you're going to have to catch the other part of it in archives because we're going to run over. But I'm going to start my interview with Wallace Rooney. I was sort of saving. His interview for last because it was so good. Oh my goodness, excellent! So um, this is Wallace Rooney, and uh, and he's going to talk about uh, Miles. And uh, it's really interesting. Uh, a little trivia uh, detail that Wallace Rooney um, 
was born a day before Miles Davis, which is kind of interesting. Wallace Rooney's birthday is is uh, May 25th, 1960, and Miles Davis's birthday is May 26, 1926. Isn't that kind of cute? Um, considering uh, Rooney is is Davis's protege. I think that's kind of cool that they're just born a day apart, many years apart, but they're a day apart. So cosmically, maybe something else was happening there. And um, I had some things I wanted to share that I wrote about the concert, but I think I'm just going to uh, go ahead and just play this interview with uh, with Wallace uh, Rooney so you can hear it because, like I said, it's just really awesome. And... Uh, and then uh, you can read my interview, my interview, excuse me, you can read my review online. I'll post it. All righty. And we're going to close out the show with with some music. And, uh, yeah, um, I just want to mention a couple of things. I guess I am going to read a little bit. Let me find it. Let's see. Because this must be a Gemini thing. Um <laughs> Uh, kind of Blue at 50 featuring Wallace Rooney on trumpet with Jimmy Cobb, So What Band featuring Vincent Herring, Javon Jackson, Larry Willis, and John Weber filling in for Buster Williams, who is ill but doing better, with a wonderful musical reflection on that great session, March 2nd and April 22nd, 1959, released on Columbia Records August 17, 1959, that changed the way jazz music was perceived then and now forever after. And one takes the word of some of the musicians born in its wake by just a few years and even after that. Musicians are still studying Miles, Miles kind of blue, and the musicians who made it happen. Miles Davis on trumpet, Julian Cannonball Adderley on alto saxophone, except on blue and green, Paul Chambers on double bass, Jimmy Cobb on drums, John Coltrane on tenor saxophone, Bill Evans on piano, except on Freddie Freeloader, and Wynton Kelly on piano on Freddie Freeloader. I missed the opportunity to ask Mr. Cobb what he meant by Kelly's playing, reminding him of the way they played before. After he left Miles, Cobb played with Kelly until his death, Cobb, uh, Kelly's death in 1971, and then accompanied another great singer, Sarah Vaughn, in the 1970s while freelancing and establishing a relationship with Cannonball's brother, Nat Adderley. Um, other songs on Kind of Blue, which soon became classics, are So What?, written by Miles Davis, um, Blue and Green, a Davis Bill Evans tune, um, all recorded on March 2nd, 1959, all blues by Davis, and flamingo sketches by Davis and Evans, both of those recorded on April 22nd, the second date. The men who performed this music this week at Yoshi's in Jacqueline Square came to the table with their own genius, especially Wallace Rooney, who besides Jimmy Cobb had a personal relationship with Davis. Davis was Rooney's mentor, and he is the only uh, only young musician who had such a relationship. When Miles passed, he headed the Legacy and Tribute Concerts and Tours, which followed. Recently, he put together the 10-year Kind of Blue Tour and the personnel. Kind of Blue at 50, uh, Jimmy Cobb, So What Band, was a spinoff of that original tribute band with uh, uh, some of the same personnel, but some not. No musician, even when pressed, would tell me which selection they resonated with the most, but I guess when pressed, Rooney admitted that given only one choice, he'd go with flamingo sketches. Uh, as you know, Javon and um, and Mr. Cobb, you know, 
uh, enjoyed Wynton Kelly, the pianist, and they chose Freddie the Freeloader, which we've already played. And um, I thought it interesting that Birth of Cool, uh, 1949, is 60 years old this year, an older sibling of of the uh, Miles Davis recording legacy. But then to hear Rooney tell that Davis was already cooking the ingredients when which defined and allowed Kind of Blue to happen musically. If one looks at Milestones, uh, the 58 Sessions, and other earlier recordings. Funny how Cobb said he dropped Rooney's name in Davis's ear. I know this kid who plays the trumpet you should meet, Cobb said to Miles before the maestro and his protege met. Cobb said he and Rooney are both from the city of brotherly love, for real in this case, if not geographically. Rooney is from Philly, while Cobb is from Washington, D.C. But then maybe there is something I missed in the in the conversation, like maybe um, Cobb spent a lot of time in Philly? I'm not sure. <laughs> Rooney's dad was a boxer, and Miles was too. Cobb said, the two had more than a few things in common. I don't know if Miles boxed professionally, but I think Rooney's dad did. So when the two met, Cobb's magic dust was already in the air, and the rest, well, if you are in L.A., like I said, go to Playboy Jazz Festival this weekend and see for yourself um, and experience for yourself the magic that happens on stage with these men. Um, Dave was a classically trained musician. Uh, he went to Juilliard uh, for a minute before he got, you know, sort of tired of the European classical stuff being forced on him and asked his parents, uh, his father, a dentist, if he could, you know, not play, not attend there anymore, and I guess they agreed. But anyway, um, upper middle class, Davis wasn't bound by the stress of economics, so he was truly free once released from his demons, some chemically induced, others psychologically inspired, to explore the terrain he mapped for himself musically, planting seeds to harvest beyond anyone's dreams. Well, I was actually on the planet when Kind of Blue was percolating. Um, <laughs> I was a baby, so I was in my crib, and hopefully... Um, you know, uh, maybe I was listening from the crib to his songs, and so my present memories are an intuitive mix of memory plus experience. Hmm, I don't know. I have to ask my mother about that. But anyway, um, here is Wallace Rooney uh, with his reflections on Kind of Blue at 50. So I've got this introductory part I have prepared. Um, <laughs> uh, so much has been said about Kind of Blue that it is a special, that it is special, more special than ever imagined by those on the set that day. Kind of Blue changed the way the genre of music had been played prior to his recording. Now, I'm not an expert, so I can't say necessarily what changed and for whom. I'd say that Miles played the way he did because he trusted the honesty of the musicians in the band who were working with him to realize his vision and theirs. One musician said the band was a workshop. Uh, he'd say what not to play, not what to play. Uh, well, Miles Davis recording Kind of Blue, you were a baby, um, I believe. Were you born? Nope. You weren't, you weren't here yet? No. Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> so our first question is, when did you discover the record, and, and what were your first impressions? Well, I first discovered the record, I think, um, when I was about six years old. So that okay. was 1966. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. And I thought it was a magnificent record. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny because I had heard a lot of the songs that they had played um, in a later incarnation of Miles because at that point 
he had recorded um, his famous My Funny Valentine record, mm-hmm. where he does all blues and um, and on um, Foreign Boy does So What. So I was hearing them another way, and it was shocking to hear it the original way. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if I liked it better or not, but it was it was definitely shocking. But what I will say about whether I liked it better or not was the power of the individual artists that was on that record. That definitely came through more than the um, the way they were playing it. John Coltrane's presence on that record was just knocked you knocked you out. Cannonball Adderley's joy it just was um, um was was infectious. Bill Evans's introspection and um beauty and then Miles was perfect. Miles was like perfection on that record. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> One of the patrons uh, last night at the club, he was so excited uh, to hear you play. And uh, and Yoshi, uh, uh, the owner, she said that Miles was in the house. Oh, that's very nice of her. <laughs> yeah, and I was wondering, um, how does it make you feel to be compared to Davis? He was my idol. <laughs> you know, he was my idol, and he was my mentor. He was my father. You know, I love it, you know, and, and I'm never trying to get away from being compared to him. What I would like to do is extend on the ideas he did, and maybe if I can add some things to it, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm not running from his influence at all. I mean, he's the greatest artist in the last, 100 years and I'll tell you something else that um, I believe Miles influenced every musician but um, you can listen to pretty much every trumpet player out there today now and they all pretty much come from uh, Clifford Brown Freddie Hubbard even though Freddie was influenced by Miles um, point of view I definitely decided then I was going to um, be true to what I heard in music myself and go Miles's be- abstract beauty way of playing, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, because his way seemed to mirror what life is about and what creation is about. It's about evolving and, and, um, and trying to get to the next state of creation, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's why he was, um, why I emulated him so much. Yeah, it sounds like a spiritual journey. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, when I see you play uh, dressed in what I call your Miles costume, gold jacket, dark shades, with Miles Davis's blues trumpet, I agree. (laughs) Wallace Rooney disappears and Miles Davis is on the set, and then Rooney, he returns, you know. (laughs) Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us, um, where and how you ended up with Davis's horn, and what's oh, its history? Let me tell that story again. That, I've told that story 20 million times. You really want to hear that again? Yep. Oh. Well, let me say this before we, um, <laughs> before we do that. Okay. If you want to know why Kind of Blue is such a great record, mm-hmm. on that record, you have the history of the music via Miles. You also have the future of what was going to happen with music, with um, with what they later termed fusion. You have 
Miles' point of view, and you know, Miles, from Miles you have Herbie, Tony, and Wayne Shorter, mm -hmm. that's Lifetime and One Report. Yes. From Cannonball, you got um, What Report via Joe Zawinul, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, the sound of the of Joe Zawinul's part of a What Report is right there in Cannonball's sound, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And then Bill Evans, you have um, or John Coltrane. Mm -hmm. John Coltrane gave you the the sound that everybody emulated from Wayne and Michael Brecker, you know, today's contemporary way of looking at mastery of the saxophone, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you have um, Bill Evans. That record right there, is the, you have all the fathers of modern music, mm -hmm. modern direction right there on that one record. Yeah. And Paul Chambers himself. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then I was reading that um, prior to um, to Jimmy and and um, and Evans joining um, the band, that there was a red um, was it Red Garland? Red Garland. Yeah, and um, I'm trying to think um, the other artists. Oh, and uh, Philly Joe. Philly Joe. Yeah, and they were like, it's when when um, Evans and um, and Cobb came in. The music shifted in a way that made it possible for Conda Blue to happen. Well, that's what I was reading. So well, is that true? <laughs> you just put it like this. Okay. If you listen to Milestone, mm -hmm. yes. you definitely hear the beginnings of Conda Blue. Okay. If you listen to um, Miles Ahead, mm -hmm. you hear the beginnings of of Conda Blue on um, on um, New Rumba. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. there's things that you could see that Miles' head was there already, mm -hmm. you know. So I'm not going to assign it that okay. a person came and changed. Mm -hmm. Miles was going there anyway. I mean, Miles wasn't going there anyway. Miles was there. Okay. You know, the musicians came and they added their individualism. There's no question that Jimmy Cobb, who was very similar to Philly Joe, actually, mm -hmm. He had a leaner approach than Philly. Philly is a lot more busier. Mm -hmm. So maybe the leaner approach highlighted what Miles was going to do anyway. And Bill Evans, he might be, Bill Evans' love for intricate harmony paralleled Miles' way of looking at harmony and Gil Evans. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Okay. Yeah. Ah, interesting. So, you don't want to tell that uh, Blue Trumpet I'll story. I'll tell you the story. Oh. What, what story do you want to know? How did I get the Blue Trumpet? <laughs> well, I was reading your um, your bio on your website, um, refreshing my memory, and it said that um, that you were um, trying to think. You were the only um, person that was trying to think. What does it say that was? Mentored, you know, um, specific, by, Miles. by Miles, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Miles didn't like a lot of trumpet players. He thought a lot of trumpet players, <laughs> you know, he he didn't like them too much. He thought they really just was um, playing either a lot of meaningless notes, because he played a lot of notes himself, mm -hmm. or they um, played jam sessiony, you know, just you know, he they didn't they weren't saying nothing, you know. Okay. And um, I guess that went a long a long ways and. Miles had an ego himself, you know, not a a, a, a 
ugly ego, but he had a healthy sense of what he was doing. And he knew that he was reaching a territory that a lot of guys didn't understand, you know. Um, so, you know, they want to emulate how he act, but they didn't understand what he was playing. So he always knew, even though someone might be talking about uh, um, Clifford Brown, that he had some stuff that he was dealing with. So I guess when he heard me, at least that's what he said, <laughs> I was one that was really trying to understand the, the poetics of what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And he appreciated that, you know. Yeah. And um, he, he took me under real quick. Mm -hmm. you, know, he, he, you know, he heard me, and he invited he, he He told me, I heard what you're doing, playing that stuff up there. And he um, asked me what horn I was playing. At the time, I didn't have a horn because I moved to New York, and I sold everything because I wanted to be in New York. I wanted to play, mm -hmm. you know. So I was going to a store called Giardinelli's, and I bought a trumpet. You know, everybody was playing the box Stradivarius at the time, and um, I had a Martin committee, but I had to, you know, I had to let it go, you know. And um, I had a Bach, and it just never had that beauty of sound for me so I was going through this horn and that horn and and giving it back to the store you know getting my money back and then borrowing another horn so at the time I didn't even have a horn you know mm -hmm. but um he told me to come over his house I came over his house that day and um <laughs> the first thing he said to me was I never liked Brownie Clever Brown <laughs> that's the first thing he said you know, uh -huh. and um, he said not that he was jealous of or put bad at Clifford. He just didn't think Clifford could swing, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And he, um, that's the first thing he said. And he had these horns here, and he asked me to play the horns. And man, you know, I love that because I had pictures of them horns in my, <laughs> on my, you know, him <laughs> playing those horns. Yeah. And he had the black maroon one, and he had the blue one, and he had the um, red one. And I played all of them, you know, and then he said, here, take this one, you know. He mm -hmm. gave it to me. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, just play it. And then at the, um, at the um, years later, at um, Montreal, my Montreal Jazz Festival, yeah. he gave me the red one. Oh. And that was right before he died. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't know he was going to pass, though. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess he was just handing it to me. Yeah. So, oh, so you have the blue and the red. I got the blue and the red and the black maroon. You have the black maroon, too? Yep. You got them all? Yep. I sure do. How'd you get the black maroon? He gave it to me. Oh, well, you didn't tell me that part of the story. When did you get that one? Same time, the first one. Oh. And I got the flute horn, too. Really? Yes, I do. Did you get that one when you got the um, the first one? or Later. Wow. And so when we see you play, is that, do you always play those, or do you have others? I have a few others, because, you know... I mean, I play Martin committees. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the best horns in the world to me. I mean, they are, period. Mm -hmm. And um, I had, you know, I got a few, so I don't have to take his out, but they just like his, you know, mm -hmm. same, you know, the same with beautiful sound. But, you know, the sound, the horn has a certain characteristic, but it's what you bring out of the horn, you know. Right. Because Maynard Ferguson played a Martin committee, too. He sounds totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it's really um I hear it's really hard to play um to play a trumpet. Um, you know, it's something about 
the aperture, what do you call it, aperture? Um, yeah. Yeah, aperture. yeah, aperture, yeah, and, um, oh, wow, and so the Martin Committee, what's, what is it about that particular, um, you know, the way they make it, that it makes it the best that you say, um, that you can play? Well, for me, it has a, it has a sound, it has, it has the best array of tonal spectrum of sound, that's what I would say. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, I'm thinking of like Hugh Mazzucato who started out on the trumpet. People end up going to the flugelhorn because it's it takes a lot of air right. to play play the trumpet. But you're playing the trumpet, and and you started at four, which means you've been playing a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not like you're old, but you've been playing a while. <laughs> and um, so, how how do you keep up? You know the um, your your uh, discipline and ability to to stay true to this instrument. Oh, I'm still I practice every day, and mm -hmm. I still try to um, evolve. You know, I don't think I'm at you know you, I don't know if you ever mastered the trumpet, but you can try. You you you, you keep trying to get close. You know, mm -hmm. you know, and then when you do as much work as you can on it. When is your time that someone else will pick up from where you left off after you're gone, you know? Because uh -huh. if you, you know, yeah, I, I feel you should dedicate your time to try to break ground, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was reading, again, your bio, um, really nice website. Uh, have you ever been there? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. <laughs> no, really. I, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, it's very nice. Um Whoever put it together for you, they did a nice job. They represent you well. Um, <laughs> it's an unofficial website, actually. Oh, is it unofficial? Oh, well, darn. Uh -huh. That's okay. cool. No, there's no, there's no problem. Yeah. Well, it says that um, in uh, 1991 you performed with Miles in the uh, Montreal, which you mentioned, concert conducted um, by Quincy Jones. Right. And... Um, and uh, which, you know, he returned to a landmark music he recorded with Gil Evans. And then when Miles Davis passed, you toured with the original members of Miles Davis' Sustain Quintet, right. Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Wayne Shorter, and Tony Williams. Yeah, the second uh, great quintet. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, and also um, uh, it, uh, it mentions that... Um, you know, that you're coming back. But before we do that, I was wondering if you could sort of talk about this uh, uh, Jimmy Cobb's So What uh, band. It's and not the Jimmy Cobb's So What band. It's called Kind of Blue at 50. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Kind of Blue at 50, Jimmy Cobb's So What band. That's what it's, it's not called. Jimmy Cobb's So What band. Oh, really? It's a misprint? Uh, yeah, because I didn't sign on for Jimmy Cobb Kind of uh, So What oh. band. It's Kind of Blue 50. Oh, okay. You know, so it's, you know, Jimmy Cobb has his own band. Mm -hmm. I think they just misprinted that. Oh, okay. Okay, so okay, so you're you're on for kind of blue fifty. Okay, right. gotcha. So so how is it uh performing with these other artists? Um, have you all performed together before, uh, as a unit like this? When we first did Kind of Blue mm -hmm. it was kind of blue at forty. Yeah. And George Wayne approached me to do it. Mm hmm He's asked me could he would I do it? I said no. Oh. They kept begging me to do it, and I said, they said, well, if you would do it, what would you do? I said, well, I'd do, I would do 
kind of blue meets bitches brew. Oh. And, but then they didn't want that, and they had me at that point. So the band I put together was Jimmy Cobb and Ron Carter and uh, Farrell Sanders and Phil Woods and Larry Willis. Mm-hmm. They, um, Ron couldn't make it legitimately. He was working at night of the concert performance. So I substituted it with Ron with Buster. Mm-hmm. And Phil Woods couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. I substituted Phil with with um, Vincent Herring. And um, Farrell was also playing the Iridium. So I substituted um, Farrell with Robbie Coltrane. And that was the original band. Mm-hmm. And we and after we did the one gig, it was successful, and they asked me to do a tour the next year, and that's the original band. It was me, um, Robbie Coltrane, Vince Herring, Buster Williams, and um, Larry didn't do it. Benny Green wound up doing it, so mm-hmm. and Jimmy. So I put that band together. Oh, wow! Yeah. Well, it doesn't show up in the print. How come? Because people are political, but you can write that, and you can write that. It'll show up in the print, too. Yeah, because... But that's how it happened. Well, you did it. That's right. <laughs> and you don't get any credit. And you can ask Jimmy, did I do it, too? Oh, I will. That's really messed up. That's how it happened. Wow. They, maybe they need reminding. Oh, that is, wow, that is really something. Yeah. Good that's how the started, yeah. Yeah. So what year was this? Um, that was kind of blue at 40. That was okay. 10 years ago. Oh. So now this kind of blew at 50. They mm-hmm. called me back and asked me would I redo it again. Yeah. And I said, yeah, sure, because I knew, you know, I love playing with Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And um, and I knew that um, I knew that they were going to feature it around Jimmy, yeah. but also it was going to be the same configuration that I had put together. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a problem with that, you know, yeah. because Jimmy is the last surviving member of the record. I understood that, you know, mm-hmm. and love him and respect him for that. Right. So that's the, that's the, my understanding of how this thing is put together, mm-hmm. and that's the that's my focus of when I'm playing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Um, I was told that um, Buster had um, taken ill. Is he okay? You know what? I just found that out two days ago as I was getting on a plane coming here, and I. I'm going to find out where he is, and I'm going to give him a call. Okay. Yeah, maybe you can let me know how he's doing. I sure will. Okay. Yeah, I shot him an email, but if he's sick, he's not answering emails. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, you're going to be back this fall, you said, with yeah. your own band. I was wondering if you could tell me um, uh, what the details was. Last time I saw you, because every time I've seen you except one time, which was too many too many years ago, you've always been connected to a Miles project, you know, Miles from India twice. I know, yeah. And, yeah, and then now, you know, kind of blue at, at 50, and then I didn't see you at kind of blue at 40, but, you know, I know you also have your own life, and you do a whole lot of great stuff. Well, yeah, I do, and my band, you know, is, is a great band. It's, mm-hmm. it's more of what Miles would have done, you know. Yes. It's taking the music further, you know, and um, it's... It's got uh, um, some great young musicians in it. Got, you know, my brother is playing, and young bass player Sean Carter, hmm. and a piano player Adewan Ortiz. He's he's crazy. He's amazing. Hmm. And um, uh, um, um, Kush Aberdeen on drums, young drummer, seventeen year old drummer. Wow. So it's a nice young band, and I think these guys. What we've been doing is extending the concepts of Miles. And John Coltrane and um, Charlie Parker and 
Tony Williams and Herbie Hancock and 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 and, and whatever is current today, mm-hmm. but playing uncompromisingly innovative jazz. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, what's your brother's name? Antoine. Antoine. Okay. Yeah. And and what's his instrument? Tennis sax. Okay. Okay. So when are you gonna be here? Um, I think you said August. Yeah, August fourteenth and fifteenth, I think. Uh, where at? At Yoshi's. Uh, Oakland.
kind of blue, mm-hmm. decided that, um, you know, he was always late. So <laughs> one mouse told me when they did the record, Philly Joe walks into the gig, to the record date with just a snare drum and a cymbal. That's all. No sock cymbal, no bass drum, no nothing. They had wanted, and they went and did the first take, and they had to go get drums for Philly. And, and Red Garland, prior to that, didn't show up. Um, he didn't show up. So Miles has to play on um, on um, Scissorhead because Red didn't show up. Hmm. Red, when Red finally shows up, the next thing they do is play um, Straight No Chaser. Mm-hmm. And then he says he's mad as I don't know what at Red. And Red starts playing in his solo. Miles was solo from Now's the Time with Charlie Parker. He starts quoting that in block chord. So Miles, he's, <laughs> he dropped, you know, it just dropped everything and, 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 and loved Red again. And, you know, <laughs> those are the things that be- become the beginnings of what happened on Kind of Blue. Mm-hmm. You know, Red showing up late all the time and then, one day, Red showed up late one time too many, mm-hmm. you know, and Miles got mad and went to hear this other piano player, Bill Evans, mm-hmm. and Bill knocked him out. So one day, Red didn't show up, and Bill was on the gig, and he said, hey, you want to come back, you know? Mm-hmm. And then Philly and Cannon got into it, and Miles didn't fire Philly. Philly just decided not to show up. So Cannon says, well, I got a drummer. And he brings Jimmy Cobb, hmm. you know, and that, and and meanwhile Coltrane, he told me the story about Train and Monk, and Train had just, who was already one of the greatest saxophone players in the world, had just developed into something else by then, and he was on a mission, he couldn't stop, and you know, and he was playing so much he was scaring Cannonball. And then by the time they get the kind of blue, that's the energy that you got there. You got that energy, you know, and and train playing all this new kind of blues and Cannon Pulse just saying, What the heck is that? you know? Mhm. So that's huh, wow. It sounds like it was fun. Um I mean, I don't know if they would say it was fun, but I guess if if one was watching it it would be really cool, you know, the drama of it all. Oh, he loved it. Mhm. Yeah, and did he uh, did he turn any of this into any paintings? Because I know he also painted. He didn't start painting until later. Oh, okay. He might have painted back then, but I didn't get the impression. Mm-hmm. He really did that until later, you know, because he was he had a stroke and he needed to do things to exercise his hand. Oh. I mean, he probably did things. You don't just start, but mm-hmm. it became more of a passion to get his hands working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I know... Um, uh, when Wayne Shorter talks about his process, he says, you know, it's like making a movie. Mm-hmm. And then when I spoke to George Cables, he said it's like painting a picture when he plays. Yeah, and I was just um, looking at um, the uh, the actual dates were um, March 2nd and April 22nd um, that these uh, two recordings happened. It seemed like kind of a, to be able to sort of pick up like March 2nd, you know, one session happens and then more than a month later you pick it up and and complete it and then the release comes out, you know, uh, quite a bit later in the year. But it's almost like, you know, when you come back, you know, in August it's almost, you know, that's the real tribute because it was actually released, um, you know, August 17th, 1959. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to be up, like, you know, like sort of in the house. <laughs> you know, sort of channeling that spirit, you know, with your presence in your new work, which is like the future. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, so cool. But um, you didn't answer my question about your creative process. Do you ever do, you, um, yeah, how do you do what you do? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> you know, because I'm constantly in it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't know how I do it. Oh, okay. I just do it, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear something. I'm always hearing music. You know, I'm always hearing rhythms. I'm always hearing, and I'm always listening, and I'm always you know, learning from the past and listening to the present and trying to imagine, you know, some people say you shouldn't live, you shouldn't live for the future, mm-hmm. you should live today, but me, sometimes I try to imagine what the future sounds like. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. Actually, I imagine what the future sounds like. Ah, oh. okay, well, I guess when we see you um, in about two months, we will. We hear what you what you've been thinking about, huh? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much um, you. for taking time out of your your busy schedule to chat with me about um, Miles Davis and Kind of Blue and yeah, and about your you know your coming to visit us. And I'm looking forward to um, to seeing you. And uh, maybe we can talk again a little closer to that that time. Great. Great. Yes. All right. You take good care. Thank you very much. All right. Peace and blessings. So that was Wallace Rooney, uh, trumpeter, and um, Miles Davis' protege. And I have not uploaded uh, Flamingo sketches yet. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play So What? And and then I'm going to follow that up with Flamingo sketches. And we'll be off the air when I play Flamingo sketches. So if you want to catch it, you have to listen to the archives. But uh, but it's been really really great, um, sort of reflecting on kind of blue at fifty. Um, yeah, blue is a it's quite a fascinating color, and in this particular particular recording um, has touched a lot of people, um, considering it's the uh, the most um, I guess. I guess it's one of the uh, top records of the 20th, 20th century. Yeah, so that's wonderful. Okay, so um, so here we go um, with So What from Kind of Blue.
Well, that was So What uh, from Kind of Blue, and I am not ready <laughs> with Flamingo Sketches or um, All Blues. So I am going to have to talk to you for a minute <laughs> while I wait for this um, uh, this file to upload. Yeah, I thought I had already uploaded All Blues, but I didn't. Darn it. I forgot. Yeah, so busy involved in listening to these interviews. They were so fabulous um, that um, I didn't take care of this other business before um, I finished with the interview with, with Wallace Rooney. So, anyway, let's see. Um, some others, I'm trying to think. There's some things happening um, this weekend that um, perhaps you might want to check out. Let's see. Go to my Wanda's Picks because I don't remember everything that I have recommended that people check out. So let me go to my website and see what's going on this weekend. Oh, I just read that um, the Nubians is going to be here next week at uh, Bimbo's 365 Club. That should be fun. And, um, and there's going to be an artist talk at George Gordon Gallery, um, Lorraine Bonner and um, uh, Susan. They are two sculptors, and they're both their exhibit opened last week, and they're going to be uh, doing an artist talk on Thursday the 18th. So that should be fun. And what else is going on? This Sunday, I hope it's nice and warm. It's going to be the uh, Caribbean music, uh, reggae in the park at the Windmaster, Wind, Wind, Windmaster's uh, Amphitheater off the of Skyline. That's going to be fun. That's going to be on on Sunday, the, um, is that the 15th? Uh, let's see. No, 14th. 15th is Monday. Yeah, that should that should be fun, and uh, there are a whole lot of music festivals happening, free music festivals happening in some of the neighborhoods. So, uh, yeah, let's see what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, there is see there is a um, a film uh, tomorrow evening at the uh, Pacific Film Archive that looks pretty interesting. I had planned on going, but I don't know if I'm going to do it now. I'm, I think I'm going to go to the Storytelling Festival instead. But the film is called The Catch, and it's by a Japanese director, Nagisa Oshima, and it uh, it's going to be, uh, be screened at 6.30 p.m., uh, episode Film Archive, which is in Berkeley, at UC Berkeley. And it's the story of the capture and eventual murder of a black American pilot by a farming community in rural Japan. It's the last summer of the war. In this peasant village, conflicts between farmers and refugees from bombed-out cities are brought to a head with the arrival by parachute of a black G.I. One more mouth to feed, he becomes a political bargaining tool in a variety of power struggles within the community. In a twist of logic, his elimination becomes a way to resolve their bickering. Um, Oiz 
contemporary folktale was a cruel parable on xenophobia. And you can visit um, um, BAMPFA, which stands for Berkeley Art Museum, Pacific Film Archive, berkeley.edu slash forward slash um, film. Oh, it is, uh, gosh, um, it is not uploading. Gosh, I am so disappointed. Well, I guess you're going to have to catch it in the archive if I don't get clicked off. Um, and don't forget the Ethnic Dance Festival continues and... I believe the Amata Cora is this weekend, which should be really fun. And uh, and save your money for Festman in Dakar, Senegal, uh, December 1st to 14th, 2009. The theme is African Renaissance, Cultural Diversity and African Unity. And you can go to triple dot Festman, F-E-S-M-A-N-2009.com, and that should be really fun. So um, thanks for hanging with me today. Um, celebrating um, Miles Davis' Kind of Blue at 50. And, uh, again, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Peace and blessings. I guess I can't just go out in silence. <laughs> I think I'll play uh, a Love Supreme. Hey, why not? John Coltrane and Miles Davis. They loved each other. So here we go, a Love Supreme. And this is, um, I think this is Richard Howell Quintet with Destiny, Harvest from the Hood, Fred Harris, E.W. Wainwright, and Richard Howell. And I don't remember the brother's name that's on bass. A Love Supreme.
a love supreme. And let me see. Um, I'm just like not giving up here. Uh, hmm, but I think um, I don't think I'm gonna be able to play that song. Oh, I'm really disappointed because I wanted to play all the songs that folks wanted me to play, and technology is not allowing that to happen. So I will have to owe Wallace for next time because I cannot. Um, I have timed out of the show. So I'll catch you all next time uh, on Wanda's Picks. We're having a special on Tuesday, I believe, with Mavis Staples. That's the plan, 11 o'clock. And we'll be back at our regular time on Wednesday from 6 to 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And then Friday, 8 to 10 a.m. And then I think I might be taking a vacation after that. Uh, no, no, is that next week? Yeah, yeah, actually, because I'm going to be away um, um, I'm going to Texas for a little 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 respite. So I'll be broadcasting from Austin and I'll be doing some pre recorded stuff. So anyway, uh have a great weekend. Be safe. Think revolutionary thoughts and make them real with action and uh look forward to talking to you when uh we catch up again. All righty, peace and blessings. <laughs>